Father, we, uh, we exalt your name. We lift you high, Father. And, and in our praises, we pray that uh, you have been pleased. And Lord, as we look into your word, we pray that you prepare our hearts to receive it. God, I pray for Pastor Lucas and Amy, God, as they take some much-needed rest and uh, refreshment. God, uh, just prepare them again to enter into the summer season of ministry here at Bayview, a season of busyness. So, Lord, we look to you and ask that your presence be here in our midst. Open our eyes and our hearts and our ears to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So we're going to continue in our series, A King and a Kingdom, Lessons from the Life of David. We've been looking at King Saul. We've been looking at David a little bit and, you know, the interactions that they have in their lives. We looked at chapter 18. Saul is crazed with jealousy. And we're going to jump forward a couple of chapters, actually six chapters to chapter 24. Uh, A lot can change in the course of six chapters. And I'm just going to have to to respectfully disagree with Pastor Lucas because I really think Saul is just misunderstood. I think people just don't get him, right? Let's think about David for a minute, okay? Let's just recap. We know that he is the whole package, as uh, Pastor Lucas told us last week, that he is rich. He is accomplished, he is brave, he is musical, right? Ladies love the musical thing. And he is ridiculously, ridiculously good-looking. Now, I'm of the opinion that anybody who has all of those qualities, anybody who is that hot, right, isn't oblivious to that fact. I am telling you, David has a streak of vanity in him. I am almost certain of it. And Goliath. He killed Goliath when he was 12 years old. Now, if that's any, I mean, that's enough to balloon your head up, right? 12 years old, you kill. I mean, I was, I was also killing, you know, monstrous adversaries at the age of 12. I was, really. Um, but it was in video games, not in reality. And David, was an, he's anointed by God to succeed to the throne of Israel. Now, if you're the guy who is in line, and you know that God is, God's hand is on you, right, you're probably itching for it, right? David's like, when is it, God? When is it my time? Is it now? What do I have to do? Do I need to take Saul out? Do I have to amass a personal army and make that happen? So David, you know, I don't think he's on the up and up the way you think he is. I mean, think about it from Saul's point of view. You know, he's the first and the current king, right? He is still the man. He is the king of Israel. And his physical stature has been described in the Bible as well. He is tall, dark, and handsome. All right, so he's got that as well going for him. He's brave. He's fought, along, he's fought long and hard for this nation of Israel, this nation that he loves, and he is victorious in battle. He has fought the Amalekites, the Amorites, the Philistines, and he has, you know, brought them all down. And so he is the one who has then unified this kingdom. He has brought security and established it. He has unified its people, galvanized them. And not only that, he has treated David like a son. I mean, David and Jonathan, Saul's son, are like best friends. And not only that, he's even given his daughter Michael to be David's bride as a gesture of his affection. Now, David wants to usurp the throne. Yeah, I said it. I said it. Usurp. He wants to take it over. He's assembled this army, and he's going to take the crown by force. I mean, Saul is just being proactive right? He's trying to protect himself. He's exercising justice. Let's turn to our scripture, 1 Samuel 
chapter 24, and we're going to read it a bit at a time. So if you want to turn, there's a Bible in the seat back in front of you. You want to look on your device, you can do that as well. 1 Samuel chapter 24, and I'm going to read from the ESV, the English Standard Version. And we're going to follow along this little story, this little narrative of what is happening in, uh, in Saul and David's life. When Saul returned from following the Philistines, he was told, Behold, David is in the wilderness of En Gedi. Then Saul took 3,000 chosen men out of all Israel and went to seek David and his men in front of the wild goat's rocks. And he came to the sheepfolds, by the way, where there was a cave, and Saul went in to relieve himself. Now David and his men were sitting in the innermost parts of that cave. And the men of David said to him, Here is the day of which the Lord said to you, Behold, I will give you your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it shall seem good to you. Here's the situation, okay? Saul's been chasing David all over this region of the world, all right? From Philistia to Moab, all over Judea, right? Um, he's gone through places like Gibeah and Gath and uh, Keilah to uh, Naioth and Nob, you, all over. So it would be like from, uh, if you're going from Kingston to Windsor up to Barry and Aurelia, okay? And we're not talking by car, right? We're talking about dragging your army of 3,000 people all over the, all the place on foot. This is what's been happening. Every time Saul gets a whisper of where David is hiding, he sends men out to track him down and to kill him. And so finally, they've tracked him down to this area of En Gedi. En Gedi is on the west bank of the Dead Sea, it is, a couple, it is due east of the area of Hebron. It's about two and a half, two and a half hour drive from Jerusalem, all right? It's southwest of Jerusalem, if, you've know, if you know the geography a little bit. Some of you may have even been to En Gedi before, all right? It's a, it's a big tourist destination. It's an oasis. And so in this area of En Gedi, there are caves. It's dotted with a, a lot of caves, hundreds of caves. And over the centuries, people and animals alike would have sought shelter in these caves. And so you've got... David and his men hiding out in these caves. And Saul and his 3,000 men are coming to route, to route him out. So David's hiding with his men. And guys, this isn't a game, all right? This isn't fun. This is life or death. This is bloodshed. This is war, all right? Their future hangs in the balance. Saul is hunting him with 3,000 chosen men from Israel. The best of the best that Saul could get his hands on is who he's brought out to hunt down David. And so they're huddled together, David and his men, they're huddled together in the darkness of this cave. And you can imagine what it's like in there, right? The sweat is in the air. You, you, can, you can hear each other's breathing. You can almost feel their heartbeats beating in their skull. And they're just waiting. They're waiting. Because it's either they're going to be found and the game is over, or there's going to be an opportunity to strike. And so they're huddled together in there. Their muscles are taut. They're gripping their weapons, and they're just waiting for this opportunity. They're all looking at the mouth of the cave. And it's like, you can imagine, it's like a bright light against black, right? All you see is the bright light of outside, and they're in the darkness. And as they're waiting there, 
a figure appears, a lone figure appears. You can imagine that moment, right? I mean, just tense, tense. And they're like, men, just steady. Don't give our position away, right? And so there's this guy, and they're watching him intently. And he squats down and starts to do his business. And they, they realize that here is a man who is wearing a robe. Now, if you've ever been in battle, you know that you, nobody wears a robe into battle. It's cumbersome. You know, you're, you're going to get weighed down. Who wears a robe into battle? Only one man, the king, the man who's not going who's, who's to stay on his horse, who's not going to enter into battle. It is the king. The king, Saul, has come in to the very cave in which they are hiding to do what? To relieve himself. How vulnerable can a man be? Now, what do they say? The men are saying, this isn't a coincidence, David. This doesn't just happen. This is God at work. His fingerprints are all over this thing. He's serving Saul up to you in a platter. This is the time to seek justice, reparation, comeuppance, vengeance. Saul is right here. You've got him by the throat, David. Just a little just a little slice through the juggler and it'll be all be over. We'll have peace. We'll be safe. You'll be king. This is God's will. This is justice, David. Can you imagine how tense it is in that, in that cave, just in that moment? It's like electric. And David, David's just silent, right? He's just, he doesn't respond verbally because he's turning the thoughts over and over in his head. I mean, he gets it. He understands the situation. He's assessed it properly. He's been on the run. Saul's made three attempts on his life by hurling spears at him. He's missed every time. He sent assassins to hang out at David's house to wait for him, to ambush him, to kill him. He's chased him, like I said, all over this region. So, so David knows what's, what's at stake here. He knows what it's about. He's been in a long, on the run for a long time. And for what? It isn't because he did anything wrong. It's because of what Saul has made up in his head. And he's thinking of his men. He said, even if not for myself, I should do it for my men. I mean, these guys have thrown in their lot with me. They've got a price on their head now. i got to end this. And so he doesn't respond verbally. I mean, he's a man of action. He's a warrior, right? He's a captain. So what does David do? He unsheaths his knife and he begins to creep along towards the king. Verses 4 to 7. Then David arose and stealthily he cut off a corner of Saul's robe. And afterward, David's heart struck him because he had cut off a corner of Saul's robe. He said to his men, the Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him, seeing he is the Lord's anointed. So David persuaded his men with these words and did not permit them to attack Saul. And Saul rose up and left the cave and went on. I mean, what was going on in David's head in that moment? I mean, there must have been these competing thoughts, right? I should do it for my men, for them. But then he thinks, my, my best friend Jonathan, my, my wife, Michael. I mean, this is, this is their father. This is my father-in-law. 
And what of divine intervention? Is this God serving him, on, him up on a platter? Is God giving Saul into my hands? But, but this is the Lord's anointed. This is, this is God's man to be king. He is still the anointed king of Israel. Eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, right? It's just fair. He is out to kill me. If the tables were turned, would Saul give me a chance to walk off scot-free? He wouldn't. And so it is with a flick of the wrist. David took not Saul's life, but the hem of his robe. It would have been easy. I mean, like, he's a, he's a warrior. He's been in battle. He is no stranger to killing men. David could have just walked up and a quick through the jugular. Done. Painless. Simple. But instead, he creeps up and he, he cuts off the corner of his robe. It's bizarre. And so David's men, it's like watching shadow theater, right? You ever see those uh, videos on YouTube where it's just like, you know, blank slate and you've got people dancing around like shadows behind it, right? That's what they're looking at. And so the men, they're staring at this lone figure. They're, they're, they're watching David kind of creep up behind him quietly, right? And they're expecting one of these. David's going to jump up, grab him. And, but no. He just creeps along and nothing happens. And next thing you know, David's back. And all he's holding is this shorn piece of cloth in his hand. Picture yourself in that cave. If you were sitting there, if you were crouched there um, in the midst of his soldiers, I would think, I think that you and I both, I think we would be goading David on to kill Saul. Because there just seems to be a rightness to it. There seems to be a justice to it, right? We have this sense of what is right and what is wrong. And given the circumstances, it would have been right for David to take fatal action against the king. I mean, in the news, we read about criminals, killers, and sex offenders who are free to rejoin society and, and most likely to reoffend again. We, we, we hear about corrupt politicians okay, who spend billions of tax dollars and they have nothing to show for it. Talk about scam artists, you know, these are pyramid schemes. We, we, we hear about um, disgraced heroes. Any World Cup followers here? Uruguayan striker Luis Suarez? Did he bite the guy? Did he deserve the ban? I've got an opinion. We know what justice is. How about in your personal life? With your family and with your friends, people who have the capacity to hurt you most of all in this world. Bitterness, envy, jealousy, the ruinous effects of those things. What's wrong with wanting to see wrongs righted, to see the unjust receiving their just deserves? Is there something wrong with that? It's just about justice. Because look at Saul. Saul was exercising justice with David, right? Justice demanded David's life. Here's an upstart shepherd boy with machinations for the throne. He wants to take over the throne. And he's going to kill Saul in order to do it. Saul is exercising justice. Take a moment and reflect for a second, just for a second. Have you done the same? Have you taken and applied your own rules of justice to any given situation? And you say, this is the most just course of action. Maybe you've even taken the blade in hand and exacted your own brand 
of justice. David has grounds to take Saul's life, right? David knows it. His men knows it. It seems like everybody knows it except Saul. David has grounds to take his life in the name of justice. Yet something stayed David's hand. Something caused him to cut into the hem of the robe and not into the jugular vein. And that thing, my friends, is the heart of God in David. David's described as a man after God's own heart. The prophet Samuel actually says these words to Saul in 1 Samuel 13, 14. He says to him, but now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. This is prophetic. This is talking about David. Luke, in the book of Acts, through the words of Paul, affirms this, and he says, When he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do all my will. That's Acts 13, 22. And so in Scripture, we affirm, uh, we see that David was a man after God's own heart. And David was able to discern amidst the pressures, amidst the conflicting voices in that fleeting moment where it took, as long as it took Saul to relieve himself, David could discern what the heart of God was in the matter. And we see that his heart was struck. His heart was struck when he took the piece of that robe and he came stealing back to his men. The Hebrew describes uh, heart palpitation. So his heart was struck, meaning his, his heart was, having, um, was beating irregularly. So it would have felt like physically David was feeling like he was having a heart attack. He knew he had done something wrong. He had gone against what God's sense of justice was. Now, we see this even in Deuteronomy, uh, Deuteronomy 5, right, in the Decalogue, in the Ten Commandments, where um, God commands us, do not covet your neighbor's wife. That thought, that, that word covet is describing the act of stealing, but in thought. Do not covet, do not desire after, do not want that thing. Do not think about taking it away from your, or her from your neighbor, your, your wife or the donkey or whatever. So in that thinking it, the sin has been committed. Jesus affirms this in, uh, in Matthew chapter 5. He talks about lustful intent. He says this, But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So we see that the thought of it is tantamount to the act of it. To think it is to act. And so David, when he took that blade in hand and when he went up, his intent was to kill. And even though he didn't perpetrate the act, he only cut a piece of his robe for David. He understood that in God's eyes, he had contravened what God desired for him. And he was conscience-stricken. His heart was stricken. He felt like he was going to die from a heart attack in that moment. And David then goes on, after he recovers from this, he goes on and he goes even further and he forbids his men to make a move on Saul. If David wouldn't or couldn't do it, okay, he's got however many soldiers, 300 soldiers. They're all trained killers, right? They're all battle-hardened soldiers. Any of them would have done it. And the window of opportunity was fading fast. 
And in that moment, you can feel the mental and emotional and physical strain that is happening in the back of that cave in the darkness. You've got Saul, who is oblivious to what's happening, right? He's just doing his business, and he's going to be on his way. He doesn't even know that the hem of his robe got cut. And you've got the men who are just trying not to freak out. And you've got David, who's doing his best to try to keep it all together, to bar the floodgates of vigilante justice from pouring forth. And so what happens? Verse 8. Afterward, Saul has left. Afterward, David also arose and went out of the cave. And he called after Saul. He says, my Lord and King. And when Saul looked behind him, David bowed with his face to the earth and paid homage to Saul, the king. David's dealing with his men in the cave. His mind's probably going a mile a minute. And really what he should have done is just, you know, just to wait it out, right? I mean, Saul has, come, has gone into this cave, has come out. He's done his business. He's clearly safe. So the cave is safe. No one's tried to harm him. And so the cave would have been given the all clear. They would have just moved along and checked the other caves, right, until they couldn't find them and then headed back to Gibeah or wherever they were, were camped out. So that's the, that's the safe move. That's the smart move, right? And all, all while this is happening, you know, you can imagine what the, the men are feeling, right? There's this bitter cocktail of thoughts and emotions, right? There's anger, there's aggravation, there's fear, there's frustration, there's disappointment in their leader, there's doubt. Is David weak? Is he inept? Is he nuts? And then out of nowhere... David, you can, even, you, you can imagine it, he's, he's trying to keep everybody down, keep everybody quiet so, you know, they're not going to give in away. And his, his mind's going a mile a minute. And he just kind of looks up at his men with desperation in his eyes. He maybe even whispers like, and he runs out of the cave. You ever have that moment where something so audacious happens, so, like, unexpected happens, you're just frozen and, like, you cannot even respond. That's his men. He's gone. And they're like, what just happened? And when they collect their thoughts and they finally get it together, they all rush out of the cave. They spill out and they stop because what they see, they have no mental folder to understand. There's no category in their mind to help them to make sense of what they're looking at because this is what they see. They see David, their leader, fearless warrior, champion of Israel. He's on his knees and he's on his hands and Saul's just a stone's throw away. The world has gone topsy-turvy. It's gone upside down. What would possess David to risk his life, the lives of his men? What would possess David to choose humble to humble himself before the man who was completely and utterly wrong about him, who has wronged him at every turn. What would possess David to do such a ridiculous thing? Because David knew. David knew who he was in light of God's anointing. 
David knew who he was in light of God's anointing. David was dialed in to God's will and desire for him. God anointed David king, a man after his own heart. And David was to be a humble king. David was to be a humble king. Because this is what David knows, that God is king. In predominance, in first priority, over everything, past, present, future, that, that was, that is, and is to come. God is the king eternal of the universe. And not only that, God, David knew that God is just, that vengeance belongs to him. David's anointing is grounded in God's character, in God's nature, in God's heart. God has revealed himself most profoundly and comprehensively in his son, Jesus Christ. Jesus, who is of the line of David, embodies God's nature and character and heart perfectly because he is God. Jesus is the humble king. We see this in Philippians 2 in the Christ hymn where we, where, um, where we hear that he... Um, poured himself out, that Christ made himself nothing. He took the very form of a servant. He came to be served, not to serve, and he humbled himself by obedience unto death, even death on a cross. And what happened on that cross when those who came and taunted him and mocked him and abused him and threw things at him, what did Jesus do? What was his response? He lifted up a prayer of forgiveness to his father, saying, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. King David is the closely, closest earthly Christ figure that we have. He anticipated and exemplified Christ's teaching. In that moment, in the cave at En Gedi, he exemplified Jesus' teaching from Luke 6, 37-38. Judge not and you will not be judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use it, it will be measured back to you. King David, the Christ figure, the humble king. Friends, you and I are anointed as David was. You and I have an anointing. We're not anointed to be king, but we are anointed to represent God, to be like his son, Jesus, to have his heart. Because it is a flick of the wrist that divides us. The hem of the robe or the jugular vein. Choosing humble allowed David to act in accordance with God's anointing. God's heart in David caused him to act in accordance with God's justice. It's all in the flick of a wrist. Maybe you're like me, wanting to be like David, but finding you are more like Saul quick to judge, slow to forgive. 
taking matters into your own hands, overtaken by your own sense of justice. Let me let you in on a little secret. God wants you to be like David. God wants you to be like his son, probably more than you do. And he has given you everything that you need to be like David. He has given you everything you need to be like his son. He's given you his spirit, whose power is at work within within you. Ephesians says he reaches down into our innermost being and he plants his spirit there so that Christ can dwell in your hearts. He has given you his word, this word of truth that reveals who God is to know him. You can know him through this word. And he has given you his son, his son who gives you a new heart so that you can have his nature, so that you can have his character so that you can have his heart. You are anointed to be like David, to be like Jesus. I used to work for World Vision Canada prior to my pastorate here at Bayview. Um, and uh, part of my job was to support the 30-hour famine. The 30-hour famine uh, is a program where uh, we would ask um, usually young people um, to, under supervision, go without food for 30 hours, without solid food, and uh, in order to raise money, uh, to experience what it is to starve and to be hungry, but also to raise money to help um, underprivileged children around the world, children living in poverty. And uh, somehow, the mother of a participant got her hands on my cell phone number. And I picked up the phone. Before I could even say hello, she just started ripping into me about encouraging kids to starve themselves. And she took, it even, she took it a step further. She took it, man, way further than that. She started to make it personal. Um, she asked me, how old are you? I was about a 20, I was 27, it was about a decade ago. I was 27 at the time. She says to me, you're a baby. You don't know anything. What do you know? Do you have kids? Yeah, I've, I've got a young daughter at home. You're a horrible father, she says to me. I feel sorry for your children. Gets me all riled up just thinking about it. I don't think it would have been out of line for me to defend myself or maybe even make a cut, of two or, cut or two of my own. But as this very one-sided conversation progressed, I discovered that she was the mother of a teenage girl who was struggling with an eating disorder. And so I finished up the call as diplomatically as possible, and then um, I did something that was pretty hard to do in that moment. I, uh, I stopped what I was doing, whatever it was, and um, I started to pray for her. I prayed that um, God would heal the brokenness in her life, that, that he would be a comfort to her, that he would give her wisdom to know how to walk her daughter through this difficult stage in her life. And as hard as it was to start, it was easier as I went along because the more I prayed for her, the more I understood and had God's heart for her. Now, I don't even want to think what would have happened had I hardened my heart, had I 
taken matters of justice into my own hands. But let me just remind you that you are anointed. That if you were a follower of Jesus Christ and you look to him as Lord and Savior and Master, his heart is in you. And he has given you everything you need to choose humble, to let God be king, and to let him be judge. I'm going to invite the, uh, the team to come back up as we finish up and uh, we're, going to, we're going to close. If I could just encourage you, just take a moment today. Think about, think about your life. Think about your responses to these matters. Think about whether or not you have taken the blade in hand and exacted your own justice without thinking and praying about what God's heart is in the matter. And as we sing in response, let's, uh, let's give this time to God. Let's pray. Lord, we look to you. You are merciful and gracious and kind and loving and long-suffering and patient with us. But you want us to become more and more like your son, Jesus Christ. Draw us into your presence, Lord. Bring us before our knees to you so that we can represent you. We can be your ambassadors in the world and do that with integrity and show the world that you are God, that you are king, and that because you are judge, that we do not need to. We pray things in Christ's name. Amen.